0: This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. In this podcast, we'll reflect on why it might be easier to worship Jesus than to actually obey Him. There's two basic insights I would like to look at here. One is Jesus really says if we want to say that we love Jesus, there's certain things we can do to demonstrate that. And um, I have quoted for you at the top of your bulletin, Charles Harlow, the the reference of the quote, Uh, Charles was a member here for many, many years. He was a retired minister. And if you knew Charles, he was not quiet. Charles had this loud, booming voice. And uh, he used to love to say, it's so much easier to worship Jesus than to do what he said to do, than to obey him. And there is some great wisdom in that. It's easier to sing our songs of love to Jesus than to actually try to do what he said to do. It reminds me of the quote of G.K. GK Chesterton, who said, Christianity hasn't been tried and found to be failing. It's basically been untried and found very difficult. And... uh, to try to do what Jesus wants us to do, which Jesus says is the evidence of our love, is really difficult. So I'll talk about that more in a second here. But the sort of the preamble to that is Jesus has promised to give us his spirit to help us to do the things Jesus said to do. He promises in this text... He will not leave us as orphans, but that he will be with us through the agency of that life-generating spirit that was in him that we call the Holy Spirit. Jesus has promised that spirit to us. And uh, I believe him. That's one of the reasons I'm the minister here. Uh, I believe. That Jesus sends his spirit to be with us in our togetherness as we try to help make the invisible God more visible. And so that's, see, the theory is, and I started this to address this last Sunday when we were together, that there are existential fears that plague all human beings. And those basically are that we're alone in this great universe. And we have this fear of death because we don't have any understanding of what that's about or why it is or what it means or what happens afterwards. And because it's so mysterious, it freaks us out. And we also have a fear of not living life meaningfully. And and we wonder and contemplate, why am I here? What should I be doing? What is the purpose of it all? And then there's the uncertainty of life. How do I know anything for sure? How do I know I've married or partnered with the right person? How do I know I went to the right school or college? How do I know I I bought the right car? For crying out loud, ordering a cup of coffee is an existential nightmare in our culture. (laughs) Do I want light roast, medium roast, dark roast? Do I want a latte? So- and then the, the creamers, there's soy milk, there's almond milk, there's half and half, there's 2%, 1%, whole m- how do I know? And the sweeteners, there's at least four different kinds of non-caloric sweeteners. There's blue, green, red, pink, yellow. How do I know which one is the best for me? It's hard, because there's no way to know. And so we deal with the uncertainty of life, the fear of being alone. We deal with the fear of death. And what is the meaning of life? And we struggle with these things. And I believe that Jesus' command, if we would do what he told us to do, they help alleviate these great existential fears. Because the primary command of Jesus, the primo, number one, Love God. Love your neighbors yourself. There's nothing more important than that. And I suggest that more than just trying to do those things to fulfill a moral or ethical obligation is not what it's about. I've learned that if I actually try to do that stuff, it helps alleviate my own existential anxiety. And I'm happier and more content and more vibrantly alive. Because if I try to love God and love you, I don't feel so alone. And it fills my life with meaning, because I've learned meaning is what we do with and for each other. So it helps unleash meaning in my life, what we do together. And the uncertainty, well, we're all uncertain, but we're in this together, and it makes it not so scary. And I trust that when I'm dying, I won't be alone because I've spent my life being with others and caring for others. So fulfilling the great commandment of Jesus, I suggest, is an antidote or a medicine for the ex- existential fears that haunt us all. Now, to help do the commands of Jesus, Jesus has promised in this text in John 14 that David read, that Jesus would give us his spirit, the same spirit that motivated him and led him and guided him, he will give to us so that we can do this and do it well. So that's the theory, that we have the spirit with us. And I have shared with you on other occasions that I was a Pentecostal preacher for 30 years, and so And and part of the resume or CV of being a Pentecostal preacher is you're supposed to know about the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's sort of a big deal. (laughs) And and like you've got the Holy Spirit figured out, and you know what the Holy Spirit wants and what the Holy Spirit's supposed to be doing, and you're clued into that. And, And I used to think, thought, I knew that stuff, but I don't know so much anymore. For me, it's much more of a mystery, but, but I do have a trust that the spirit of Jesus is with us, as he promised to be with us together. Not me personally, but in our togetherness. And it's one of the reasons I took the job here as the interim pastor. I retired from being a hospice chaplain for 17 years. And I was just going to hang out and have fun and do all the things you're supposed to do in the golden years. and uh, But I saw there was a need here. And there are people that I care for here. And I knew I wasn't going to be traveling or doing much, so I thought, well, maybe, maybe it's a prompting of this spirit that I should apply. My wife, who is a beautiful, wonderful Buddhist, said, yeah, you probably should. Now, I'm not the brightest guy on the planet, but I, well, maybe I should pay attention to this. And so I called Linda, the moderator, and I applied, and here I am. And I I told you when I was hired, I have no grand vision. I don't know what we're supposed to be like or what we're supposed to do. I am not here to mold us and to shape us into something. I'm clueless, and I'm I'm glad to say I'm clueless because it's in my cluelessness that I trust the Spirit of God will speak to us. As we wrestle together, how should we be in this time and place? What should we be doing? As we struggle and do that, that's where I have learned to trust the Holy Spirit shows up. It's when I've got it all figured out and try to make something fit my image That sort of chases the Holy Spirit away from what I've learned in my experience. But it's in being open. What could, what are the possible, that the Spirit will speak to all of us together, not just me. I like that. And I learned that in a large part by being a hospice chaplain. I can remember there were many times I would show up and I had no idea what I was doing, what I would say, or what would take place. But I trusted that Jesus would be with me and send his spirit to guide when I don't know. This is something I've developed over 17 years of hospice chaplaincy. One particular case I remember vividly was a, uh, a man I went to visit out in Weimar. And uh, when I went out to see him, He was sort of a a wild kind of a guy. I mean, loved to tease. One of these larger-than-life kind of people. Full of, just just wild. His family loved him. They adored him. When I showed up, I think a couple of his kids were there. His wife was there. The social worker was there. The nurse was there. And they were like having a party. And this guy's been diagnosed with cancer. He's going to die. And they're laughing and yucking it up. And I show up. He says, what do you do? I said, well, I'm the hospice chaplain. He said, I got no use for you. (laughs) And everybody went quiet. And he said, look, here's the deal. My mother was about as God-fearing a person as you would ever meet. She loved God. She was a beautiful, wonderful woman. And she died a horrible, long death with cancer that was incredibly painful. And I figured if... God treats a woman that loves him like that, i got no use for that God. And so I'm not interested at all. And then they went on to tell other stories. I mean, th- th- these were different people. He told me the story, that they would just loved to laugh and joke. And, and he told me the story on one of his anniversaries, he and his wife went to Las Vegas, on their wedding anniversary. And she paid for him to go to a brothel so she could go to the casino and play the slot machines and he wouldn't bother her. And they loved each other. They they cherished and laughed at how wonderful their life is and how much they care for each other. Sitting there like a deer caught in headlights. This is different. They didn't teach you this at seminary. So finally, I've been there a while, and he goes, so so, what can you do for me? After hearing all this, and I'm sitting there, and I got nothing. I mean, I got nothing. And I hear the words come out of my mouth, I could beat your ass at cribbage. <laughs> and now, I have never said anything like that in 17 years as a hospice child. Where did that come from? That was the only thing inside. And I thought, I've been around these unfiltered people so much, my filters are shot. And, it's, and he goes, you come back next week. We'll see about that. Now, I didn't know the guy played cribbage, like cribbage. I, did, I just knew. I don't know where that came from. But that was all that I had in the moment. And I'm crazy enough to think if that's all you got, you get what you got, and it might be the Holy Spirit so anyway I show up next week we played cribbage and as we're playing he told me that cribbage was incredibly important to him and that his dad taught him cribbage and that's how he and his father bonded in fact that's how he learned arithmetic when he was in grade school that's how he learned to count was by playing cribbage and that he made a point to teach his own sons how to play cribbage and they bonded deeply over that as well as hunting and fishing and all the other stuff. But they were always playing cribbage. Now, I had no clue. And over the weeks, we played a lot of cribbage and became dear, dear friends. I loved that guy. And he fell in love with me. He died on a Monday. And the Friday before he died, I was out there. We couldn't play cribbage because his days of that were gone. But we talked And he let me pray a blessing for him, for his journey. And he cried and I cried. And I'll never forget that man. And it all started because I knew I had nothing. But I trusted, when I have nothing, the one I'm trying to follow has something. And give it a shot, you never know. And I felt that way about taking this job. I don't know what I'm supposed to do but we'll find out together. And I trust the same spirit that Jesus promised he would not orphan us is with us, as crazy as we are, with our flags and all the crazy things we do, that this is God's church. It's not my church or your church. It's God's. And that the spirit is with us as we try to sort out how do we do what Jesus commanded us to do? How do we help make the invisible God a little visible, by trying to follow Jesus on the way of radical love. How do we do that? I have no clue. But I trust as we wrestle with this and struggle with it together, the clue will emerge. It's what happened with the Tatarenko family. We had an open house. We had a space. We read about Ukrainian refugee families that needed a safe place. We didn't know for sure, but, well, could be, possibly. And it's worked out wonderfully that there's four human beings that have a safe place to live and can relax for a few moments. Now we didn't help all the Ukrainians in the world but we helped some and it fills our life with meaning being able to share and help others. And so as we're exploring what to do next I'm going to suggest some things that we might do. We've spent the first six months I've been here looking interiorly at our own hearts to sort of repair some woundings that we've caused each other over the last couple of years, and we've done good work at that. And I'm suspecting that the Spirit of Jesus may be saying, okay, it's time to look outward now. Let's start to give away some of what we got. And so we're in the midst of stewardship season. We're trying to pull our monies together. What can we do to help others if we sort of pull it all together? And that's what stewardship is about. How can we be a blessing to our neighbors? And so some of the things I'm sensing and I'm suspecting that the Spirit may be saying to us, and I offer it to your own hearts and prayers, is One of the things I notice in our community, just those of us that come here, we have folks among us that are declining in physical abilities and mental abilities. And the people that love them and are caring for them are getting plum wore out because it's hard trying to take care of somebody 24-7 when you're 80 or 90 years old. It's hard. And so how could we walk along and support each other in this? to make sure we're all cared for and that there's enough food and enough people to sit with and drive to appointments with and and be there to just listen with over a cup of tea or coffee? How can we do this together so that we don't leave anybody behind? How can we love each other for real, not just say the words, but put some skin in the game? So that seems to me a really important thing for us at this juncture of our life as a community. And I know Becky Martin and Diane uh, Toth are going to start next month sometime, a support group for caregivers of people so that they have a place to to fill up and be nurtured. And if you would have energy or want to help with that, you can talk to Becky, who's here Somewhere I don't see her right now, but I, oh, there she is, hiding behind Glenn. Nice to see. You. Or Diane? Talk then. How how might we help do that? Because it, as it says in the Bible, many hands makes the work light. So we help each other. So that's one thing that that's really in my heart right now. Another thing that's in my heart, and there's so many of us. I've heard you tell me the importance of being involved with the stewardship of our environment and the climate stuff going on. What can we really do, practically do, just as the 150 of us or so, given that we're all of an older age and we've got limited ability and limited money, but what can we do to ensure that our grandchildren's grandchildren have a a hospitable planet to live on? What can we do here? And then the other big one that's in my heart is how do we care for our unhoused neighbors and the lack of affordable housing in this town? We have the mayor of our community is, is with us, who is it's so much a part of her heart to help create a place in Ashland where there's people can afford to live here and thrive and be safe here. How can we help her? How can we, what can we do with the food bank and, and, and with the unhoused, what can we do? Well, we're not going to solve it all. But what can we do? So if those things are bubbling in you, as they're bubbling in me, maybe that's the spirit of Jesus saying give your attention to these. And we have in our company, we have Ellen Crane and and Wendy from our church office downstairs, Wendy Wysolm, Leighton Wysolm. I always get them flipped. I work with her every day. But they're going to head our justice and witness outreach so that they can sort of guide our energies so that we're not all over the map, but that we can do something focused to help in these arenas. And if you have energy for that, reach out to Ellen and Wendy and let them know, hey, what can we do? What ideas do we have? These are the things bubbling in me as we begin to look at how can we, in fact, in reality, love the people we cohabitate this town with. And I wonder if, if that's the spirit of Jesus showing us how to do the things Jesus has commanded us to do and that we give evidence of our love that we say we do have for God. Now I realize the things I'm suggesting are big and broad and what can we do? And so to help ground me And what can we do? I I remembered this beautiful prayer by a slain Salvadoran archbishop named Oscar Romero who penned these words and it encourages my own heart to do what we can. And so this is what Bishop Oscar Romero, it's called the prayer of Oscar Romero. It goes like this. He wrote, it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The realm of God is not only beyond our efforts, it's even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the realm of God lies always beyond us. No statement says all that can be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we're about. We plant seeds that will one day grow. We water seeds already planted knowing they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We can't do everything. And there's a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it really well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for God's grace to enter and do all the rest. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between the master builders and the workers. We're workers. We're not the master builder. We're ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future not our own. And so my friends, my plea this morning is that in some way, somehow, some way, we will begin to focus our energies to do the things that Jesus has commanded us to do, trusting that the same spirit that motivated him is with us.